G'day wherever you may be around the world, and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. I'm John and joining me all the way from Louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, author of The Moses Scroll. You can get a copy from themosesscroll.com. That's themosesscroll.com. G'day, Ross. Hey, Jono. How's it going, man? Going very well. Thank you, my friend. Uh, oh, you've got a bit of news in regards to The I- Moses Scroll. Give it to us. That's right. Right now, as of May the 31st, between last week's show and this week's show, I successfully uploaded onto Amazon the Kindle version. So now people can go and they can click the link, download the Kindle version, and they get it instantly, Jonah. So if they go to the MosesScroll.com, they go to the author's blog, they'll see a blog post called The Moses Scroll Goes Digital. There it is. Uh, they can read that, and there's the link right there, and they That's jump on there and get bucks. it. And next Why is week, it so cheap? Oh, yeah. Hey, let me tell you this. It's $9.29 U.S. Now, you cheap. can pick any number. Why $9.29? First of all, I wanted to go below $10. Because people, you know, people say oh, it's ten dollars—that's a lot of money. But if you give it to them for nine ninety-nine, they think they're getting a deal, right? I'm being honest here. <laughs> so then I said, wait a minute, what's a better number than nine ninety-nine? And I chose nine twenty-nine. You know why, Jono? No, I have no idea. Go on. Oh, this is good. You're gonna love this. This is a marketing tool. I'm, I'm learning how to be a marketer. There are 929 chapters in the Tanakh, and I am a Bible-loving man. So I, I said 920. There you go, 929. That's a bit of trivia. Look, you, you never know. You yeah. never know when somebody's going to hit you with that trivia question. They're no, going to no. call and say, "Jonah, we've got you live on television. Answer this question <laughs> for a million dollars. How many chapters are in the Tanakh?" And you say. Puh. Nine twenty nine. You got yourself a million dollars. Well, I didn't know that, and I bet there's a whole. Actually, maybe everyone listening knows that, but I didn't know that. Nine twenty nine chapters in the Tanakh. That's how much you can get the Moses Scroll on Kindle for. It's way too cheap, in my opinion. So you better take advantage of it and get a copy. That is uh, great. You can get that immediately and follow along with us as we go through the Texas of the second episode. Going into, the, and I'm kind of excited. I got to say, Ross, because we kicked off last week with the intro and the outro of the Moses Scroll. Um, yeah. I'm glad that we did that because while it is a part of the document, it's not actually a part of the scroll of the Torah of Moses. Do you want to just explain that for us for a second? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. I'm glad you kicked off with that because we want to explain something. What what we find in ancient literature, not only in this document, but in the Torah and in the Tanakh, uh, quite often throughout the prophets, we get what some call an autograph. We get an introductory phrase written by a scribe, which just identifies the work. It's clearly the hand of another, and then it leads you into these are the words of uh, Isaiah, son of Amos. Uh, now, some might say, well, I think Isaiah wrote it, but generally, most people assume, at least on the scholarly side, that this is a later pen, which is just putting a header on the document. And we see that in this particular document as well, in the manuscripts. And I say manuscripts, there are two copies of the what's often called the Shapira manuscript. Uh, but each of these has this opening phrase written by another that's just identifying. These are the words which Moses spoke. Eli Hadevarim. In fact, we see that in Deuteronomy as well. So that's all we have. We have this 
introduction, and then it's only one line, and then we get this full text about three and a half meters long, 11 and a half feet, uh, 21 columns of text, and the very last line is a closure, which is also written by another hand, and we've talked about that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think this is fascinating. It frames it up. Now, one point, I think we touched on it last week, but before we get any further, uh, I want to make the point just so that people make sure they don't forget this. Aside from the opening and closing lines, nowhere else in this document is the tetragrammaton mentioned. It's only in the opening and closing lines. Elsewhere, all throughout the document, even when one would expect the document to use the tetragrammaton, yod heh vav heh, the four letters is what tetragrammaton means, um, even where you would expect to find it, which we'll see as we go through the text, it reads where the canonical or the Masoretic text reads Yehovah or Jehovah or Yahweh, um, it, it reads Elohim. Uh, most people usually say that Elohim is a generic title for God, quote unquote. So anyway, so that's the opening and closing phrase written by another hand, clearly the work of a scribe. And also, Jonah, I'll say this, we know that the opening and closing lines are written within biblical Israel. In other words, in the land of Canaan, on the west side of the Jordan Valley Rift. How do we know that? Because it mentions the fact that these are the words which Moses spoke on the other side of the Jordan, which we did mention last week. So whoever added, whoever appended the opening and closing lines to the Moses scroll, did we not only know that they did it later than the scroll was originally composed, but they also did it in a different place. Mm-hmm. And, That's and, a good and this end. is obviously, uh, yeah, and this is obviously uh, represented in Deuteronomy. It begins uh, the same way, copying Moses' scroll. Now, we should. I, what I'd like to do, Ross, is to be okay. clear with the listeners that we're going to be taking the position that the Moses scroll is a proto Deuteronomy. That that way, you know, the way that we talk and the tenses that we use, and and so on and so forth, and me just saying that uh, it is represented in Deuteronomy. The Moses scroll is represented in Deuteronomy. Um, speaks of these documents that the copy of Deuteronomy that we have in our Pentateuch is a copy that came later expanded upon, elaborated, and so on and so forth from the original, which we're saying is the Moses Scroll. Is that fair? That That's very fair. And can I add something to that? Go ahead. Okay. So one of the things that I want people to realize is that uh, this thing, Chapter 34, if we look at Deuteronomy 34, uh, not to rehash anything, but just to make this point, uh, this very point was not just made by Ross and Jono, uh, and not just from modern critical biblical scholars, but it has been noticed throughout, uh, for the last several hundred years at least, by other students, including rabbis, who said, you know, it is interesting that we find these verses, uh, and they're they're most interested in chapter 34, because once you get to chapter 34, something clearly shifts. In chapter 34, Moses went up from the steps of Moab to Mount Nebo, you know, and it's clearly described by, it seems to be, the hand of someone else. 
So it's not just our speculation. Anyone who reads this critically, meaning they're careful to read it and pay attention, they'll notice, as so many rabbis and other sages throughout the ages have made note of. Is that fair? Mm, absolutely. No, I'm good. Elohim Eloheka, and we have to stop there. This is the way that the Moses scroll, the actual Moses scroll begins after the introduction. And already mm -hmm. we need to pull on the brakes and go, wow, <laughs> Elohim Eloheka. Now, if you look, and, and also, dear listeners, I want you to have open Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses, uh, let's say, 6 and 7, and you're going to find uh, where the um, Moses scroll is represented in your book of Deuteronomy with some additions, some elaborations. We're going to be looking at, uh, at that and highlighting that as well. The difference in this case is that in Deuteronomy it uses the tetragrammaton, uh, uh, yud he Eloheka. Uh, but here in the Moses scroll, Elohim Eloheka, let's stop there, Ross. Yeah, it's good that you bring that up because what, what was noticed even in the 19th century, in 1883, when this text appears in print, the first appearance of anything of this text appears August the 3rd, 1883. Once it appears, one of the things that's noticed is this point that instead of saying uh, yod he vav he, um, uh, uh, instead of saying yod he vav he, your Elohim, it says Elohim, your Elohim. Now, this was noticed and mentioned in the papers, and scholars immediately jumped on it. The first is Ginsberg. Ginsberg is doing a transcription at the British Museum. He's publishing his transcription in three weekly editions, August 11, 18, and August 25 of 1883. The first thing that he does is mention in his commentary that the phrase Elohim Elohecha is never mentioned in the Tanakh. Now, he makes a mistake, Jono. It actually is mentioned. It's mentioned exactly in that configuration in two places in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Those two places we'll talk about in just a moment, but um, it didn't take long, and other scholars jumped on Ginsburg. Now, scholars are they're really at each other's throat. Here's Ginsburg. He's getting all the attention of the world. Mm. People around the world are reading Chuck Christian David Ginsburg is reporting on the, is it real, is it not? If it's real, Shapira's going to be rich, you know, and so <laughs> forth. Sure. So Neubauer is one of the scholars who's well-known even to this day. He immediately jumps on the the uh, the back of, of Ginsburg and says, ah, but Christian David Ginsburg misses the fact that it occurs in the Eloist Psalms. So do you want to look at those and see that phrase, Jonah, yes. so, so we can show we have, that it is biblical? What we have is Psalm 45, verse 7, and Psalm 50, verse 7, if I remember correctly. And I, I have to say, Ross, when, when I first looked at this, I was shocked to find that Elohim Eloheka, the phrase, um, yeah. is only used twice in the Tanakh. I thought it would have been everywhere. And uh, you know what? It's certainly a possibility that it was. Um, that's another discussion. Yep. We can we can get back to that, but we can clearly see that it was changed in Deuteronomy to Yehovah Eloheka, uh, and Psalm forty five seven. Do you have it in front of you? I do. Um, Go for let's it. see. I'm just looking to see if it's the same. Okay, so in Hebrew it's verse eight. And okay. You said yeah, it's verse seven. 
Um, it says you, I'm reading from, let me open up the JPS. I've got so many Bibles here. Now in, in Ginsburg's defense, I think Ginsburg came back and said, my mistake, quite right. Uh, I meant to say in the Torah and uh, it didn't It didn't appear in the Torah. Now, if, if I remember correctly, I think both words do occur in Deuteronomy. Now, not as a phrase, as separate words, yeah. but they, they occur in Deuteronomy Chapter 8, verse 19, chapter 21, verse 23. But as a phrase, uh, yeah. if, it, uh, if, it, if, it, if it appeared ever in, uh, in the Tanakh in such a way, it has been overwritten to represent the Tetragrammaton Ross. Yeah, so that's a good point. He, he did try to catch his, uh, get back under his feet and say, whoa, 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 I'm sorry, I, I, I meant to say this. But uh, but by then everybody had run with it. They were already they they tasted blood. They were on it. <laughs> but in forty five Psalm forty five verse eight in the English, um, it says, "You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Rightly has God, your God, God. chosen to anoint you with the oil of gladness over all your peers." Uh, that's the JPS, very loose translation. But you, you see the phrase, God, your God. Mm. And, and so this is, uh, this is an interesting... Now, we do have other psalms that are called um, Eloist psalms, oh, yeah. meaning they employ Elohim. And like you said, we have passages in the Torah which use both of these, you know, Elohim and obviously Elohecha. But in this configuration, Elohim, Elohecha, it's only found in Psalm 45, 8 in the English and mm-hmm. 50, verse 7. So we can go there next All and right, just I've pick that. that. Some people have. And it says, um, is it the same in the English, uh, verse 7? I've got it in the, in the Hebrew here. So it is. It is. Pay heed, my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will arraign you. I am God, your God. So it's Ani Elohim Eloheka? Yep. And, and okay. see, some people think that seems kind of strange, but, you know, you say, I am God, you're God. It's like, well, that's not a name. That's just, you know, that's kind of it. So it catches people off guard. But, but one thing I want to point out, and this was something else that really struck people, there is a belief within... Uh, biblical scholarship, and this goes back a long way, Jono, where they determine, now most people have heard of what is called uh, the documentary hypothesis, and some Mm -hmm. people might be rolling their eyes right now, but one of the things that scholars noticed early on is that certain texts within the Bible have what what we would call a mirror text or a duplicate text, you know, where you have two stories— that that contain basically the same stories, like the story of creation in Genesis 1, the story of creation in Genesis 2. And, and when they compare these side by side, scholars began to notice that it was very interesting that in certain ones, the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, appeared, whereas the other one, which would tell a very similar story, uh, would use Elohim, where you might expect to see uh, the Tetragrammaton, or vice, mm-hmm. vice versa. So mm-hmm. what scholars begin to define is that the text which employs Elohim is called uh, E, out of the J-E-P-D. But, but I want to make one more comment on that, because some people 
just have a very rudimentary understanding of the documentary hypothesis and and they wonder how people come up with this. So let me let me make this point. Go with me to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 2, and then we'll move forward. While I'm just looking this up, I also just want to say that we're, when we mention the documentary hypothesis or anything like that, like uh, uh, source criticism, so on and so forth, people tend to get a little bit nervous, and that's because generally this is spoken about in circles where they want to explain things away, and they don't believe that there was right. a, uh, a divine impartation of, of lore at Horeb. Again, I just want to say we are moving forward with the Moses scroll from the position that this actually happened. Uh, we're moving That's forward correct. with the Moses scroll that there was a divine impartation of Torah, of, of, uh, of lore, to Moses at Horeb and to the people audibly, uh, and that'll be clear as we continue. But we're, we're taking that position as we read through this. Uh, Exodus chapter 6. Uh, 2 three. and 3, if you can read 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name. And now I've got the Tetragrammaton there, yud heh Yeah, so this text is really interesting, and I know we've touched on it before, but just to underscore this point about the divine name, uh, there is the view within scholarship, and, and again, this is the view that I'm, I'm talking about, the academic view, uh, based on this text, one would read this without any apologetics and and simply recognize that this is a, is a challenging text, because God says clearly here that uh, I am Yod Hey Vav Hey, but the fathers I didn't make myself known to them by that name, and so people when they read this they say, wait a minute, if I go back in Genesis chapter four is the first time. Uh, actually, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the name is mentioned for the first time. Mm. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, it says, Then men began to call upon the name yod So this creates a conundrum. It, mm-hmm. it makes people say, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? So just to underscore what scholars believe about E in the JEPD, they don't say that E never uses the tetragrammaton. But what mm. they say is that if you're reading a text in the Torah that they've identified as E, it will only contain, it will not contain the Tetragrammaton until you reach Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. Hopefully that makes sense. So I just don't, I know people sometimes say, well, you know, E never uses the name. That's not true. So, by the way, on this text, the Moses scroll, Neubauer makes this comment. He thought it was a forgery. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but he says the most clever thing about this manuscript is that the forger is trying to pretend that it is very ancient, that it goes back to a time, Jono, before the name was known. In other words, he's saying this is very ancient. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, it's it's very, very clever, Ross, you see, because it's trying to pretend, or or maybe it's just original. Okay, so Elohim 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 continues uh, the Moses scroll, spoke to us in Horeb saying, now before I read what he said, uh, Horeb, Ross. Horeb is, it's very interesting when you think about, you know, uh, sometimes people refer to the place of revelation as there were two names given. One is Sinai and the other is Horeb. 
-hmm. Now, which one is it? And, and so what's fascinating is when you really do a breakdown of this, and we cover this in the notes for people who get the book, they'll see all this. This scroll, by the way, always, Jono, always uses Horev and never uses Sinai. And so it's closer, really, to what we find in Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy um, uses Horev almost exclusively. Uh, Sinai occurs only once in Deuteronomy chapter 33.1, but uh, Horeb is used outside of Deuteronomy only in Exodus in three places. Mm-hmm. So if if you're reading the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, you're going to encounter most often the word Sinai. In fact, most people talk, when they talk about the place of revelation, it's more commonly referred to as Sinai or Sinai um, and, and not Horeb. But if you read Deuteronomy, you're going to come away naturally with the places called Horeb. Now, people debate, is this one maybe the name of a region or, let's say, a mountain range? The other is the peak or the central place of Revelation. Uh, So that's still debated, but I encourage people to do a major study on this. But just to say again, the Moses scroll never uses Sinai. It only uses Horeb. So there you go. There it is. Elohim Elohecha spoke to us in Horeb saying, and here it is, and this is the, these are the words of, of the Lord. Uh, mm-hmm. You have dwelt long enough at this mountain, this is Mount Horeb, uh, turn mm-hmm. and set out for yourselves and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the dwellers in the Aravah, in the mountains and in the foothills and at the coasts of the sea. You know what? Yep. This this is all we're going to get to because there's so much in this uh, that we have to yep. unpack, and this is all we're going to do for for this particular uh, program. A couple of things that comes to mind for me: okay. did did Elohim speak audibly to the people? This is post this is this is post Ten Commandments. We're going to be getting uh, to the Ten Words, to the Ten Proclamations. We'll be there uh, um, eventually. But um, this event that Moses is recounting uh, appears to be post uh, after after that event, and it seems like to me, and it seems to be reiterated throughout the remainder of the uh, scroll, and we'll obviously work our way through it, that God spoke to them audibly, gave them a command audibly. You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and set out for yourselves, and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the dwellers of the Arabah. Um And uh, yep. This is this is one thing that pops into my head. Uh, another thing is that um, there is additional information, Ross. There's a, additions to this verse in Deuteronomy of geographical locations. Uh, I'll get yeah. you to touch on that as well. Uh, and the third thing is the Amorites. Well, this is interesting. I was really confused by this at, at the beginning because mm-hmm. my understanding was that the Amorites ran... Uh, on the east side of the Jordan, the, the hill country uh, immediately uh, ascending from the Jordan Valley. And, uh, and and we know that to be true. That was occupied by the Amorites. And I'm thinking geographically, wh- where exactly is Horeb and how does this work out? I mean, this just seems kind of strange. But in actual fact, a little bit of um, a study on my part, uh, and lo and behold, they also, the Amorites, occupy the hill country of, yep. of Judea there, Ross. 
Yeah, I think I think you're bringing up some good points. Now, one of the things that's interesting, if you look at a map, now it depends on which map you look at, as you and I know very well from looking at this for a couple of years now, it, it depends. You know, like people will show a circle as if this particular region is inhabited by this group and this is a tribe and and, and I think that a lot of that is actually guesswork. You know, people want to plug something in on a map and they're, they're doing the best they can. Mm. But we want the text to kind of give us the boundaries. We want to begin to uh, talk about this, this particular geography. And one of the things that I think is important, uh, and I pull this out in the book, you mentioned the geography that's mentioned. In Numbers chapter 33, verse 1 and following, it says that Moses recorded the stations, uh, I think is the way the English, the journeyings of the tribes as they moved out. And what's interesting is that that's one of seven references in the Pentateuch, which tells us that Moses wrote something about the trek. You know, how do you how did the tribes move from uh, the beginning of the journey all the way up until they get to Shittim, you know, on the east side mm-hmm. of the Jordan uh, and so forth. So, so this is an interesting thing for me because the the Moses scroll begins with a journey. It begins with a travel itinerary, mm. if you will. Mm. And so, I think that it's interesting. Now, the other thing that I find fascinating, I thought when I began this journey, this study, that I knew the Bible well. But how many people have actually studied? The Amorites, mm. is that just one of the tribes or is it something? I mean, we could do a whole show on the Amorites, to be quite honest. Yeah, we could. Uh, but the Amorites is very interesting. One one other point about the, I translate it, go to the hill country of the Amorites. In Hebrew, this literally says Har, the mountain of the Amorites or Amorite mountain. I I followed the traditional translation here because one has to wonder what's being actually talked about. Does this refer to a single mountain known as Amorite Mountain, or is it something more speaking of the hill country or the mountainous region? What do you think on that? I I mean, have you ever entertained that thought? Well, you and I have been there. I mean, we've been in that area, and we know that uh, it's almost like a plateau. It's an elevated area of Judea, uh, and then it sinks down into into the Aravah. And you get a real sense of that when you're standing at Mitzvah Ramon, for example. Um, Right, right. I I, I tend to think that the the hill country, the, the, the elevated area above where they are is where Elohim is referring to and that it's currently occupied by the Amorites. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think you're right. And and one of the things it's you, you bring up, this is the beginning of the scroll, and we already encounter uh, Moses' is reporting that Elohim, our Elohim, spoke to us in Horeb. So to your question, I tend to think that this was audible. I tend to think that it was to the group. You have been here long enough. Turn and set out. In other words, literally in Hebrew, it's pull up your tent stakes and move forward. Go to the following places, the hill country. the inhabit- So he's telling them from the very beginning, as soon as they've been given the, uh, the covenant and so mm-hmm. forth, 
it's time to go and occupy the land. Mm, it's uh, right. from the beginning. That's it. You got to yeah. do it. You've Here's been here long orders. enough. You've been here long enough. Now it's time to get into the land. This is why I brought you thus far, you know, to give you the law and to give you the land. And now it's time to take the land. Um, so it's important and it carries a lot of weight if it was audibly spoken in particular to the people. Uh, so the interesting thing, Ross, comparing uh, Deuteronomy 6 and 7, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7a to yep. uh, to the Moses scroll, uh, where the Moses scroll mm-hmm. is represented in Deuteronomy, the uh, Deuteronomy uh, includes the Negev. We don't have the yep. Negev listed here in uh, in the Moses scroll. It adds, uh, Deuteronomy adds the land of the Canaanites. Uh, we don't right, have the Canaanites right. mentioned in the Moses scroll here. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, adds Lebanon and as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, Ross. Yeah, I, I think that that's uh, it's worth noting. A lot of, uh, again, uh, people don't have to accept this. A lot of scholars make mistakes. I mean, this is not to say all the scholars say, but I will say this. There is an idea uh, advanced in academia that uh, some of these geographical boundaries of the land are greatly expanded based on the farthest reach of the kingdom. In other words, at a later date, this is an anachronism that that these things, these other details, boundaries would be placed within the text to say, eh, go and possess this area. And there, therefore, we have. But the original may not have been quite that specific. This is the allegation. So um, is it really the boundaries? I, let me give you one example. In the biblical text, we know that the southern boundary of the biblical land of Israel, there's a phrase that occurs, I believe, seven times in the Hebrew Bible, from Dan to Beersheba. Mm. Uh, that is one of the most frequently used descriptions of the north-south boundaries of the biblical heartland. Uh, so what does that do to the southern boundaries? We have references to the place called Ma'aleakrabim, which is mm. used a few times, the ascent of the scorpion, which, by the way, we've been there, we've been haven't there. we? We, we mm, go there. Times. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so the biblical boundaries, as they are presented in the biblical text, vary even within the Pentateuch, which we'll get to more in future classes mm. uh, or future discussions. Uh, but sometimes this is sort of expands and contracts. You know, what are the original boundary markers? That's very That's important, right. I think, so in our study. Let's talk about the uh, boundary markers, or at least the areas that are described in the opening here of the Moses Scroll. If people can uh, open up to a map of Israel, if you've got a, a handy ancient map of Israel in the back of your Bible, we're using the uh, the Jewish Study Bible. It's got excellent maps there. I was going to say, we'll get Daniel Wright, our excellent geographer, there you go. Uh, to help us design a really cool map. He can do it. He's done it for me before. He does an excellent job. And so if you don't have something in front of you, dear listeners, just Google uh, ancient Israel map. All right, Ross, just tell us where these areas are and uh, what's being described in the opening here. Um, they're sort of general descriptions. Uh, if if you basically, it and it of course it depends on the orientation in other words, where where is Horeb? This is, I think, the biggest question for people mm. um, that that creates the biggest flexibility in defining these areas because it depends. So, in other words, if you say, by the way, there are approximately fifteen competing locations for Horeb, 
Sinai, about 15. Mm. There are more, but those are the big ones. And then of the 15, there are probably three that are the top contenders or the most frequently adhered to or believed in. One is St. Catherine's, which is in the southern Sinai. So people will believe that, that, no, I don't need it. And then then there is, uh, there is the, the popular one today, which is in Saudi Arabia. And uh, that's Jebel Al-Luz, and people love that. But look, Jonah, it makes a cool movie. You know, they have a a huge sea splitting, and, you know, it just makes for a better story and good video production. No, wait, wait, wait. So, I mean, you you and I have looked at this. You've looked at it even closer. Um, And I, I have to say, in light of the Moses Scroll, there are two contenders, two serious contenders. One is the one that you and I have been to a couple uh, uh, mm-hmm. Har Kakum, uh, which is the mm-hmm. only one that is within the boundaries of modern Israel, and we can go there, and we will be going there on our Moses Country tour in 2022, in November 2022. The other you're just going to brush right over that. That's a major I know I'm coming. Thing. I'm coming back to that, but I'm just saying that the okay. other one is one that uh, Simko Yakovovich uh, champions, and you know more about that. And I really think they're the only two. I mean, are there any other besides those two that you think would be taken that that you would take seriously? No, absolutely not. In fact, right. I think that uh, of of those two, Simka puts forth a very compelling argument. And by the way, um, his location is along the same route, so I don't exclude mm-hmm. his his identification. And it's not far but from Elats, right down in the, really, the Gulf of Aqaba. There, that's it's uh, it's it's on the Egyptian side. And uh, we can we can maybe uh, get into this later and post mm. a better map. But people can Google Simka Yakubovich, uh, the uh, location of Sinai. He's published a paper on this. So, what's it called? <laughs> is it but, Pa'el but you, or think, Mountain of the Lord? It, it's in Arabic. What's what's it called again? I think it's called uh, Jebel Hashem. Yeah, which yes, is an yes, quite right. Name, something yeah. like that. Yeah, <clears throat> but but this location that you and I lean favorably towards is a place that's called, in modern Hebrew, it's referred to as Har Karkum. Mm. Now, Har Karkum was first discovered in the 50s by an Italian um, person by the name of Anati. And Anati first discovered it in 1954, I believe. He was assigned by the Israeli government to map the desert regions and he came across this place. He didn't think it was Sinai. It never even crossed his mind. He's just mapping this location. But he found some very interesting petroglyphs and some what we call rock art that he knew was very ancient. This is one of his mm. specialties. And it appeared to be a sacred site that dated back to the early Bronze Age. I mean, and actually, there are Paleolithic uh, discoveries there as well. So ancient, ancient. Mm-hmm. So the, here's a here's a mountain in the middle of can we say nowhere that seems to be a major focal point throughout history for desert tribes who are worshiping a deity of some kind. Mm. And so he found it interesting. Then he loses it, meaning you know it's so remote. You and I can attest to that. We've oh, done yeah. with the Tylers a yeah. couple of times. I mean, you you have to. It's it's remote, it's, and so it's, long story it's a, short, a he, grueling uh, four wheel drive uh, uh, journey just to yes. get in and find this place. Uh, fascinating yep. terrain. It's just really cool. But keep going. 
Yeah. So, uh, so the Tylers and I have really been interested in this and you as well. We've been there. How many times have we been there together? Is it two or three? Uh, I'm trying couple, to remember. A couple of times. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, but then Anati later goes back and he looks for it and he finds it. So beginning in the 80s, uh, he spent 30 years working on this site. And I want to mention one other person. There is a scholar in Australia by the name of Deborah Hearn. Oh, yeah. And Deborah is currently working on her Ph.D. And get this, her Ph.D. is uh, revolves around the idea that Har Karkum is not only the biblical Horeb, but that it matches the description of the wilderness itinerary with no exceptions whatsoever. Mm. Now, that's a pretty bold claim, mm. uh, but I followed some of her work, and she's a wonderful, talented scholar, and I think that uh, people are going to be surprised when she comes out with this. She's been invited to several scholarly uh, uh, venues where she's presented some of her research, uh, but fascinating topic. So, Yes, you and I are planning to bring a group, a whole tour group, mm. right? Yeah. To Har Karkum. We've I got mean, a bunch of people booked for this already, yeah. Uh, we're going to be, that's the highlight of, our, of the Moses Country Tour, which follows directly on from the Tanakh Tour uh, from the 8th of November 2022. And if you'd like to be part of that, uh, there'll be a link. And um, go, or you can go to tanakhtours.com. Details are there. So, Ross, um, Har Kakum is, if I remember correctly, can I say that it is southwest of, let's say, Besheva, or it's, it's much more, it's, it's further southwest of, I uh, already mentioned, Mitzpah Ramon, just a little northeast of Ilat. It, it's down in, it's really down in the Arava. I mean, it's, it's not too far from the border, the current border of um, uh, Egypt and, uh, and Israel. On the yeah. Israel side, just on the Israel side. And let, and let me also add one other detail, and, and Deborah Hearn is the one that pointed this out. So I don't think I'm giving away any of her mm. research because she's presented this publicly. But one fascinating thing about her research is that Har Karkum uh, is part of the same range of mountains that goes from Har Karkum would be the southern point. The central point of this mountain range is Hart Zion, Mount Zion. Mm -hmm. And then the northern tip of the same range is Mount Hermon. Mm -hmm. So think about Hermon. it. If you draw a north-south line, this is the best way I can describe its location. If you draw a north-south line, start at Hermon uh, in the north, draw south and go through Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and then you continue south until you reach, it's directly below what's called in Hebrew the Maktesh Ramon, uh, the Ramon Crater, if you yeah. will. Yeah. And, and so it's a north-south orientation. Uh, very interesting, I would say. And it's, it's only, you know, it's, it's getting close. Uh, it's a little bit west of the Arava. So mm. right there along the Nakal Paran, by the way. Remember... We have these uh, images that talk about how uh, God comes from Paran, from the wilderness of Paran. So mm. Karkum or Sinai or Horev can't be somewhere that's this distant from the Paran desert. By the way, uh, I, I've got to say, because when I hear people say that 
Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. It's to me, it's simply impossible because you can't get there in a the time frame. The mm. text doesn't describe that it's no. possible to get there from. It's it's ridiculous. And in, in my view, I don't mean to offend people, but I do. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but listen, um, it doesn't mention, uh, like Deuteronomy adds, uh, the Negev, but the Shephelah, what's the difference between the Shephelah and the Aravah? I mean, this is why this is, reason, this is why people eventually ended up with the idea that it was in, in Arabia, is because it says Aravah, right? So, uh, the, the Aravah is the lower desert region, the southern desert region of, uh, of uh, Judea. Uh, the Shephelah, how, how do we describe it's- this? I think typically it means the lowlands or the Judean foothills are typically referred to as the Shephelah. Mm. So so what you have is a description of some major areas that occur throughout biblical literature. So the Shephelah um, in, in Hebrew, basically, sometimes we see the phrase uh, Shephelat Yehuda. And Shephelat is is uh, it, it means the foothills of Judea. It, it would, would suggest yeah. to me that uh, the Negev became a, a known as a particular area uh, later on as the land became occupied. And uh, for sake of clarity, uh, the writer of Deuteronomy has, has put that in. Uh, and then it goes on to say, and the coast of the sea. Well, that's easy because we know where the Mediterranean Sea is and we know where the coast is. Right. How far up? Well, mm. that's that's a different discussion, but that's pretty much all we have time for. Did we want to go further? Do you have any final uh, thoughts, Ross? No, I think uh, I think we've gone far enough for, for one particular discussion. I mean, you and I could do this all night, but other people have things to do. So, okay. no, but I, I think this is a fascinating start. And look, one thing that we've not provided to people is the actual translation of the scroll, which they can now get if they don't want to wait three or four days for the mail to bring them this beautiful book. I think they ought to get both, but that's just me. But if they want it electronically on their Android or their Apple device or any of their e-readers, they simply go on Amazon.com to the link that we post all the time about the book. They click the button, Jonah, spend 929, which is the number of books of the Hebrew Bible, mm. interestingly enough. They click the button and voila, it's there. And now one other thing, if people are members of, uh, what do they call it, Kindle Unlimited, I don't even know what I'm doing when I'm, this is my first <laughs> book. So it says, you want to put this in Kindle Unlimited? I said, yes, yeah, sure, why not? I click yes. If a person is a member of Kindle Unlimited, guess how much they pay for the book, Jono? How much? Nothing. What? Nothing. Are you serious? Nothing. You get it for free. It's free. What's that about? Yeah, they get it for free. You're, I don't you're know. Doing this all I just wrong. said, yeah. yeah. I want people to get the book. <laughs> so right. I said, yeah, give it to them. Yeah, whatever. Just read the book. So if they're part of the whatever Kindle Unlimited is, you, you get it for zero dollars. Right. Just click it. Good grief. All right. Well, that's great. I want people there to get is. the book. People have no excuse. If you don't have it already, you really should. Uh, Mosescroll.com, Mosescroll.com is the website. Hey, before we go, shout out to Ariel Tzion and Elior uh, Tzion, the artist in uh, Har Hebron. Uh, his um, Facebook page, uh, Elior's Art, Paintings and Cakes. His wife makes cakes. Uh, but he has done a painting. Now, this, this came to our attention through Ariel Tzion, uh, Israeli tour guide. 
great guy. We remember we ran into him at uh, when we were in the desert at at uh, Tamar. He came, he came to visit us. He came to he visit did. us while we were doing an archaeology project. That was cool. Uh, but yeah. evidently, uh, Elior has done. What will you describe this for me? It, the, you called my attention to this when you, when you texted me. Have you seen the painting? That uh, that was posted by Ariel, and I thought nah, I must have missed it. I was busy today, and so I, I immediately went there, and and evidently, Elior has painted the ten words on two stone tablets according to the Moses scroll. I was blown away in Paleo Hebrew. So in Paleo Hebrew, that's right. So and it it it's according to the description that I give in the Moses scroll book. So you know what we have to do. The next time we're in Israel, we've got to hook up with Ariel yeah. and go see Elior's shop and say, "Hey man, can I can I get a copy of that? How much is it?" And hopefully he'll say it's nine twenty nine, Ross. <laughs> I've been that looking be at cool. his. I've been looking at his website and his and the, and the pictures of his art. He's really quite the artist. He's very talented. So, I uh, really appreciate uh, Ariel um, uh, bringing that to our attention. And thank you, Elio, for for making such a beautiful painting. Looking forward to meeting you next summer in the land. That is all we have time for. Got to go. We're going to be picking up where we left off this time next week. And until then, dear listeners, have a great one. Shavuot Tov. Have a beautiful week. <laughs>